The Radiant Boy of Corby Castle, The Witch of Easington, and a look at Marsden Grotto in 1955. Welcome to episode 11 of a Northern Counties Paranormal Podcast, hosted by Within the Boggart Wood. Hello and welcome to the episode. I would like to start off with a massive thanks to Mark the Northeast Antiquarian for his five-star review on Apple Podcasts, which reads, A brilliant podcast that focuses on some of my favourite topics from my home area. Keep up the excellent work. So, cheers for that, Mark, and I'll certainly give it a go. Secondly, I'd like to give a quick update on Patreon. As well as access to the free download of my 2009 ebook, Supernatural Northeast Folklore, Myths, Legends and Ghosts, patrons now have access to the AI art used in the podcast episode thumbnails, and also have added the Boggart Woods first video episode, which is 15 minutes of archive footage from an experiment during a paranormal investigation, where the investigator is left alone in the dark and blindfolded in a room where alleged poltergeist activity has been occurring. Patreon support is £3 a month, which can be cancelled at any time. These donations all help massively towards the cost of producing and hosting the podcast, as well as going towards the cost of hopefully what will be producing podcast and video content during new on-site investigations. Today's first story is the Radiant Boy of Corby Castle. Corby Castle lies by the River Eden in northern Cumbria, and holds Grade 1 listed building status. The manor of Corby was first mentioned in the time of King Henry II, when it was granted to Hubert de Valibus, who in turn passed it to the Earl of Carlisle, and then was given to the Salkelds by King Edward III in 1336. The estate was bought in two parts in 1605, and then 1624 by the Howard family, and remained in their possession until 1994, when it was sold privately, and remains a private residence to this day. The core of the present-day castle is medieval, likely 13th century, with additions in the 17th century. However, the castle underwent major remodelling in the early 19th century, forming the now familiar rectangular plan with neoclassical facades. Corby Castle, or rather the original medieval core of the building, is said to be haunted by an entity known as the Radiant Boy, not to be mistaken for the ghost with the identical name said to haunt Chillingham Castle in Northumberland, or the same meant to haunt parts of Yorkshire and Lincolnshire. According to author Laurie Kemp, Corby's Radiant Boy was first sighted in the early hours of the morning on the 8th of September 1803, when the Howards were hosting a party and guests were staying in the castle. The rector of Greystoke, Dr Henry Askew, and his wife had stayed the night in one of the rooms within the medieval core, accessed via a passageway cut through the eight-foot thick medieval walls, and left the next morning with what could only be described as extreme haste. Apparently, in the early hours of the morning, the rector had woken up and noticed that the fire in the grate had died down completely, that the room was in darkness. Then, as his eyes adjusted to the dark, he suddenly saw a small light appear in the centre of the room, and as he looked across, it seemed to dance like firelight, and he saw to his amazement what is described as a beautiful boy, with golden hair, dressed in white, who crossed to stand silently by his bedside and watched the rector for some minutes without saying a word. The spectre then glided to the fireplace and disappeared, and with his departure the unnatural light in the room vanished, leaving the rector in his tumbling thoughts until the dawn arrived. 
the sighting became entwined within local legend. In 1840, historian Fraser Teitler visited Corby on the 8th of November, but left without seeing the radiant boy. He wrote, The whole place is redolent of feudal antiquity, with a fine gallery of old portraits, an old library, and, as you know, a ghost. But I have come away without seeing the radiant boy of Corby. This was extraordinary, for I had to walk to my bedroom every night through a long dark gallery of which you could not see the termination, with old warriors frowning on me, and the moon streaming in through the gothic window at the end. Circumstances which one would have thought any well-conditioned ghost would have profited by. As well as the radiant boy, Corby Castle is also said to be haunted by strange ethereal drumming, and also the clattering of spectral headless horses pulling a carriage, experienced once a year and said to be the echo of the carriage summoned by the rector of Greystoke to remove himself and his wife from the castle after seeing the radiant boy. On Wednesday 25th of February 1903, the sketch, part of the Illustrated London News Group, contained the following story, though it must be noted that the castle's origins in the article as Roman is completely wrong. Corby Castle has, among other claims to fame, that of possessing one of the most authenticated and interesting of ghosts. The radiant boy, who has been seen many times, and who is much famed among those interested in such matters. The radiant boy is said to appear only to those destined to die violent deaths by their own hands, and it is certainly on record that one of those to whom he appeared at Corby was the famous Carotted Cutting Castlery. The ghost has, however, certainly been seen by those who met with happier fate. The apparition appears in a room forming part of the oldest portion of the castle, that adjoining a tower originally built by the Romans for defence. There does not seem to be any record as to who the radiant boy originally was or why he has chosen Corby as the scene of his appearances. As with many such stories, the radiant boy of Corby Castle even morphed in folklore into a portentous spirit, with the idea that whoever saw the ghost would rise in power and be successful in life, but at life's end the death would be a tad unpleasant. By 1913 it was reported in local press that the entity would appear every seven years more as an anniversary visitation, but this seems to be the first and only time that the seven-year story was added to the tale. Later still, the idea that the boy would appear at Christmas time was alluded to by some. In 1922, Marcus Strong wrote an article for the Southern Reporter named Ghosts That Walk at Yuletide, and in it he named the radiant boy of Corby, claiming that never a Christmas Eve went by without the boy appearing, citing the rector of Greystoke's story again, but this time changing the date to the Christmas Eve in order to tie in with the article title. So, as you can see, it isn't just the modern press that change our folklore and ghost law to fit a good article heading. Today's second story looks into the folklore surrounding the Witch of Easington and her habits of herring around the county. It was said that in the latter half of the 18th century, the lands around Easington and Castle Eden in County Durham were the haunt of a witch, said to be fond of shape-shifting into the form of a hare. Legend tells us that the peculiarity of this particular hare was first noted by the local gentry while out on their hunting expeditions. On a number of occasions the same hare was noted by the dogs, but while the dogs were unleashed and chased the animal at full speed, the hare always evaded them with ease, seemingly just vanishing before the confused hounds and their masters. This happened so often that eventually one of the huntsmen suggested that the creature must be a witch, as it was known then in the area when out and about witches often took the form of a hare due to their swiftness. 
It was then further suggested that there was a small cottage nearby that always appeared to be shut up and empty on hunt days, and that its occupant, a sole lady described as an ill-tempered wrinkled old hag, had never been seen at the same time as the hare in question. Described as a tall, lank, bony woman with masculine features, she usually worked alone in the fields, as her rather unpleasant nature had essentially alienated her from her neighbours. Whenever the harvest was poor, there had also been rumblings that she was to blame. So as was the way of things, the cry of witch went out. The way to test the theory, though, was that a black bloodhound had to be found. But not just any black bloodhound. It was to be an animal that had suckled at a woman's breast. Apparently this wasn't as rare as you'd likely imagine, as the next day the master of hounds presented such a beast, and it set out on the trail of the cunning hare. Unlike the rest of the pack, the black bloodhound was not fooled by the hare's tricks, and the hare set off at full tilt towards Easington, with only the black bloodhound in hot pursuit behind it, and the rest of the pack having lost the scent. Realising that its pursuer wasn't a normal hound, the hare turned and ran for the old woman's cottage, aiming for a small hole in the cottage door designed to allow hens easy access. But just as the hare reached the door, the hound's fangs closed on the hare's haunch, tearing off a strip of flesh as the hare tumbled into the safety of the cottage. The rest of the pack had, however, been able to track the black bloodhound, and the huntsmen weren't far behind. They ran up behind the black hound, which was snarling and pacing at the front door. The huntsman tried the door, but found it must have been barred from the inside. So, absolutely convinced that the old woman inside was a witch, they battered down the door and looked cautiously inside. Inside they found the old woman, weeping uncontrollably in fear and pain, and bleeding from a wound on her haunch. She told him that her witchcraft power had gone as soon as the hound had drawn blood, and she begged for their forgiveness and leniency. The story goes that the huntsman did take pity on her, and trusted that her power was gone, as she said, and simply left her alone to try and recover from the damage the hound's teeth had done. From that day, the hunt was never plagued again by the wily hare, and nor were the villagers affected by poor harvests. Apparently, the powerless witch survived her ordeal, and continued to live in the cottage for a few more years, though completely shunned by her neighbours, and was said never to attend church. However, when she eventually passed away, likely through some after-effect of having been left her own devices with a large chunk of flesh missing, she was taken from her cottage, and rather than given the usual witch's burial, she was buried in consecrated ground at an Easington churchyard. Oddly, in death, the legend says that some of her supernatural power returned, and she was often seen in the shape of a white sheep, rolling over the churchyard wall, though these later sightings were likely simply the product of too much beer and some woolly thinking. Now, if you'll excuse that rather appalling pun and are still with me, Moving back to the commonly held belief that witches could take the form of hares when out travelling, I found a few other tales of witches taking the form of such animals. Some 30 miles northwest of Easington is the village of Hawkwell, where a witch was said to live alone in a cottage and transformed into the speedy shape of a hare while out and about. She had a small trapdoor in her cottage's front door, which she'd used to scarp at a safety if threatened, in a story very similar to that of the Easington witch. At Hawkwell, it was said that the villagers knew she was a witch, as any young horses that fed on the land behind her cottage always sickened, and it was said that there was a windstone on the road by her cottage that had melted when she sat on it. Moving back 40 miles into Durham, at Sedgefield, there was said to be another witch, who, in the late 18th century, took the shape of a hare whilst out on her daily business, and had the misfortune to run into the local hunt. The witch, named Borty, 
bolted for her cottage and the trapdoor she had set in the main door. But, you've guessed it, just before she made it through, one of the hounds caught up and managed to briefly grab her leg. When the huntsman burst through the door, they found an old lady gasping in pain, her leg broken. In the Denham Tracts of 1846-1859, Denham records that there was a ghost of a hare set to haunt the village of Humboldton, and it was often hunted by men from Humboldton and Wooler, but could never be caught. Presumably, in this case, there were no old ladies in Humboldton at the time for them to blame it on. Denham then goes on to report another story. A female on the Harvest Ridge, once having the misfortune to break her sickle, was obliged to proceed home for another. As she went hastening along, a hare hurpled across the path before her, and then turned round to gaze. She hurled her broken sickle at the hare, and it sprang suddenly across the field as if a pack of harriers were on its trail. At her return near the same spot, she encountered the hare, in the same attitude as before, and, determined not to be beat this time, she launched the fresh sickle at it and it struck it on the brow. But instead of flying, the hare, with a wild scream of vengeance, darted at her and began biting and scratching her on the face like an enraged cat. A fight, attended with local outcries, then commenced betwixt the two, which two labourers mowing in the vicinity overhearing hastened to the woman's rescue, else there is no saying what might have happened. On attempting to lay hold of the hare, it slipped through their hands and escaped. Not long after that, a very old woman in that quarter had, in some unknown manner and by a sharp instrument, had an ugly gash made thwart her brow. This venerable dame had hitherto been very intimate with the individual who fought with the hare, but from that time forward she could not abide her, and diligently avoided her presence. She now fell under the imputation of being a witch, for though looked upon askance and with dread, she had hitherto preserved external propriety. Losing this, she came forth in her true colours, renounced the friendship of her former associates, wreaked her fury on milk, butter churns, and dwining babies, fell foul of the farmer's stock, and shook his corn, in short, committed all the untoward disasters within her neighbour's limited geographical range. What befell her, I was not told. At the time these tales originated, various body parts of hares formed folk remedies. For example, in Sussex, the right forefoot of a hare was classed as a charm against rheumatism, and in Warwickshire, it was worn on a cord around the neck to ward off cramp. Hares were said never to sleep, presumably because in the well they often sleep with their eyes open, but because of this they were accused of bringing supernatural restlessness. Hares were also said in medieval times to be both male and female at the same time, and crossing the path of a hare was also said to be incredibly bad luck, with labourers walking to work in the morning, starting their journey anew if a hare was seen. If a hare crossed the path of someone in their later years, it was also the belief that this was an omen of death. Even dreaming of a hare was said in some parts of Britain to be an omen of calamity or death, and if a hare was seen by a pregnant woman, her child would be born with a hare lip. In Scotland, it was even suggested that hares were shape-shifting fairies, who would snatch away dead children. Finally, on the subject of witches and hares, we come again to Anne Armstrong, who has appeared in two previous episodes of the podcast. On April 2nd, 1673, before Humphrey Mitford Esquire, Anne Armstrong of Birkenook Spinster saith that Anne, wife of Thomas Bates of Morpeth, Tanner, had been several times in the company of the rest of the witches, both at Berwick, Barrisford, and Ridingbridge End, 
and once at the house of Mr. Francis Pye in Morpeth, in the cellar there. The said Anne Bates hath several times danced with the devil at the places aforesaid, calling him sometimes her protector and other times her blessed saviour. He hath seen the said Anne Bates several times at the places aforesaid, riding on wooden dishes and eggshells, both in the riding house and in the close adjoining. She further saith that the said Anne hath been several times in the shape of a cat and a hare, and in the shape of a greyhound and a bee, letting the devil see how many shapes she could turn herself into. This episode's from the archive section comes from the Newcastle Evening Chronicle, dated Monday 21st of November 1955, and is entitled Friendly Ghost Walks at Night. The poltergeist that lives at Marsden Grotto is really rather a pet. It is a little noisy at times, but apart from that there's no trouble at all. A very sociable spirit, says the manager cheerfully. A friendly poltergeist is quite in keeping with the grotto, for surely this is one of the most remarkable inns in the country. Built into the great magnesian limestone caves at Marsden, it has become, over the years, almost part of the natural landscape. Its manager, who has a suite of delightful rooms, can surely claim to be the most comfortably housed caveman in the world, and his guests drink the beer and enjoy dinner with a hundred feet of solid rock about them. Other inns may have thicker walls, but has any a thicker ceiling. Once upon a time, and not so long ago at that, Marsden Bay was wild, dangerous and inaccessible. Greatly daring, the gentry at South Shields and Sunderland would ride along the coast to watch, heart in mouth, the great waves beating the famous rock, the curving sands far below, the smugglers' caves and the seabirds wheeling. Today the lovely bay, though picturesque still, has been tamed. There is a lift and the steps at the other. Council houses run almost to the cliff tops. There is a frequent bus service and thousands have come to accept the extraordinary grotto without any sense of wonder. The story of the grotto is the story of the taming of the bay, and the story of the taming of the bay is largely the story of two men, Jack the Blaster and Peter Allen. Jack the Blaster was a quarryman from Allenheads, whose work drew him to South Shields, where he settled with his wife. As they got older, they began to feel the cruel grip of poverty tightening, and at last, about 1782, they took to the caves at Marsden Bay. One in particular they made their last home. Jack was almost 80, but he was a tough old boy. Soon he was at work cutting the first steps from the cliff tops to the sands, and using his quarrying skill to enlarge the natural chambers to his new home. This was lucky for Jack and his wife. While he welcomed the visitors down his new steps, Mrs Jack served them teas and light refreshments. When the old man died ten years or so later, he was said to be comparatively wealthy. When Peter Allen came along, the cave had been empty for perhaps 30 years. The bay was still lonely and remote, but Allen, a shrewd businessman, knew a gold mine when he saw one. The son of one of Sir Hedworth Williamson's gamekeepers, Peter Allen had been in his time a valet, a publican and a quarryman. All these trades were to come in useful. Seeing that adventurous picnic parties were finding their way to the bay almost every day in fine weather, he decided to cater for them. A lucky win at Shields races helped, and soon he had a tent on the approaches to the bay and was selling food and drink to passers-by. Meanwhile, he was busy with wholesome excavations at the Marsden Bay, employing Pittman from Whitburn to help him. At last, he and his wife moved in. 
Here they raised a family of eight children and lived for the rest of their lives. At first, the authorities darkly suspected Alan of smuggling. Why else should he choose to live in a cave? And the Coast Guard was reinforced. And then the excise men were at him for selling ale and porter without a license. So he got one with some difficulty. After that, he was more or less left alone to enjoy his strange new life undisturbed. He never stopped excavating as his family grew. So did his house. A new bedroom? Nothing easier. Hack, hack, hack. And there it was. Walls a little damp, perhaps? But what of that? In time he had created 15 rooms. Some like the ballroom, strictly for public use, others private. They were lit by massive grated windows, and it was said furnished with driftwood, seaweed and stone. It became immensely popular. Crowds of holidaymakers came down the steps to enjoy the beach, to swim and to eat, drink and be merry at the grotto. They have never stopped coming. There was always music for dancing in the evening. Dick Thornton, later to become famous as the founder of Moss Empires, played his fiddle there, and Alan, a showman to the end, was forever thinking up new attractions. He had, for instance, uncovered several skeletons while digging into the rock, and one of these he had on show for a while. It was said to be that of a smuggler, and was a rare curiosity. Alan prospered, although absurdly he was nicknamed Peter the Hermit. He was surrounded by a devoted family, many friends, and was a happy, laughing man. Then the blow fell. The coastal strip was owned by the man to become first mayor of South Shields, and in 1848, a claim was put in for rent. Peter Allen was flabbergasted. The grotto, he replied, was his. It had taken him more than 20 years to create with his own hands and skill. It was his. Stoddart and Clay took him to court, and Allen learned the bitter truth. He was only a squatter. He could be evicted at any time, and had better toe the line. He had said he would never give in while he could wag a leg. Now he gave in. He agreed to pay £30 towards the law costs and to pay a rent of £10 a year for 20 years. It sounds a reasonable settlement, but it was a bitter blow to his pride. Within the year at the age of 51, he was dead. A broken heart? His wife was not the only one to think so. The widow took over and continued to run the place until her death in 1870, when her son and daughter succeeded her. Vaux and Sons Limited, the present owners, took up the lease in 1898. When they took over, they found the grotto stacked with old barrels which were hard to be rid of in the ordinary way. They soon found the solution. Lining the barrels up on the beach, they launched them on the ebb tide. Jack the Blaster's old rock steps were destroyed during the First World War as a discouragement to invaders, and at the end of the war, the present wooden staircase was built with its 119 twisting steps. The company bought the grotto in 1936, and in two years spent 12000 on alterations, including the electric lift. The grotto as it is today, with its tanks of tropical fish, its carpets, soft lights and comfortable furnishings, modern lounge and first-rate restaurant, would have astonished Peter Allen. But some things have not changed. Many of Allen's rock carvings are still there, and so is the smuggler's bar. The sea which swept into his house many times sometimes breaks a window or two, and the poltergeist is still around. In Alan's day, this eerie phenomenon was said to be the ghost of the murdered smugglers whose bones Alan had disturbed. The story was that Jack the Jibber attempted to betray his comrades, was caught by them, placed in a tub, and hauled aloft in a cave known as the Smuggler's Hole. Once a day, he was lured to receive scraps of food and the jibes and abuse of the men. 
At last he was killed, or perhaps starved to death, and his moans were heard for years afterwards. This would have surely been an unhappy ghost. The present spirit is nothing of the sort. He follows the manager, the burly Irishman called Desmond, Patrick or Gorman, round as he locks up, finds things he loses, and pays one visit a night to the manager's suite. Mr O'Gorman, an ex-paratrooper who came to the grotto in January after managing hotels in the Bahamas, Jamaica and Bermuda, does not mind. It is company if you are alone, he says. But, friendly as the poltergeist is, it requires the courtesies to be kept up every night, as it has been for many, many years. A pewter tankard of beer is left for it in the smuggler's bar. The bar is chained. There is no access whatsoever to it. In the morning, the beer is always gone. And if the buffet maids forget the beer, the chairs and tables are overturned during the night. Now, you explain that, says Mr O'Gorman. Thanks for listening to episode 11. If you want to know any more about the project or want to join the Boggart on social media or Patreon, please visit the main Within the Boggartwood website at theboggartwood.uk. If you have any stories you'd like to send in to be read out on the podcast, please see the links on the website or email them in to theboggartwood at gmail.com. Until next time, have a good week and stay safe.